If you drove up to O'Hare Airport and you got on a plane to Tel Aviv, Israel, you'd be in the air for like 11 or 12 hours. And if you landed in Tel Aviv, Israel, and then you hired a taxi, you got on a bus, whatever it might be, but after driving for a couple of hours, you would make it to the Sea of Galilee. And if you drove over to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, like Capernaum area somewhere around there, what you would see is this hillside that slopes up out of the water. And especially during the rainy season, you would see this thick grass and there would be flowers all over that hillside. And if you would be there, you would be approximately at the very area that Jesus was. Now, we don't know the exact X that marks the spot, but you would be approximately in the location where Jesus sat down before a multitude of people and taught them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount is an amazing message. It's Jesus' explanation of the principles and the values of the kingdom of God. And it has a lot of different sections to it, but the particular section that we're in today and that we're going to be talking about today, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is making a transition in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of what we've already talked about in this study has had to do with the interior life of the disciple of Jesus. For example, Jesus has talked about giving and praying and fasting, and the focus there has been on the internal, uh, internally thinking about that, how we internally process those things. What is it that is our motivation? What is our heart in that? Which is very important, but that's not all that there is for the disciple of Jesus. And it's not just about what is on the inside, but it's also about how we treat other people. God is very concerned about how we treat other people. So Jesus is going to going to begin to speak about that right here in Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. And here is what he says, you can see it there for yourself, your Bible's open in front of you. He says, "Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you." Now, I don't know if you have a favorite verse in the Bible. Sometimes I think that my favorite verse in the Bible is whatever it is that I'm preaching on or teaching on that particular week. But some people have a favorite verse in the Bible. Well, I'll tell you, if there was a Bible verse that our broader culture seems to know, I think that this might be the one. In fact, I've heard non-believers quote this back Uh, more than once, many, many times, judge not that you be not judged. That verse is a verse that people who don't know anything about the Bible seem to know pretty well. And they seem to use it as a verse to sort of uh, be used as a weapon against Christians to say, you know what, you are not permitted to make a moral judgment of me. Whatever I do, whatever I say, it's off limits to your moral judgment because judge not that you be not judged. It seems like people who quote this verse are hoping that what Jesus condemned here was any kind of assessment or judgment of the lives of other people. But friends, I don't think that that's what Jesus meant at all here. 
Number one, if that is what Jesus meant, then I want you to notice that he contradicts himself in the same Sermon on the Mount. Because in just a few verses, Jesus is going to talk about measuring our life, measuring the lives of other people by using this image of tree bearing fruit. And Jesus says, look at the the fruit of the life. Look at the the fruit of, of that person and then you can tell what kind of tree they are. And to do that demands some kind of moral assessment. Sometimes I think about how Jesus got into it with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And can you imagine one of the times when Jesus was just letting the religious leaders have it and just really kind of giving it to them for their own hypocrisy? Could you imagine one of the Pharisees coming back at Jesus and saying, hey, judge not that you be not judged? That never happened. Jesus here is not prohibiting any kind of moral judgment. That's not the point of this verse here. No, instead what Jesus speaks to is how Christians should be towards others, how his disciples should be, and the way that they should assess and look at the lives of other people. Friends, the Christian is called to show unconditional love, but we are not called to show unconditional approval. We, all, we really can love people who do things that the Bible does not approve of. It's really possible to love a sinner and yet not love their sin. Do you know how I know that that's possible to love a sinner and hate their sin? It's because you do it with yourself all the time. All the time you look at yourself and you say, you know what, I'm okay with me. But I hate this thing that I do. We are familiar with this concept and we really can put it into practice. Recently, I've been studying through the Psalms a bit on the side and I was reading a particular um, commentary comment about uh, Psalm 139. It was something from an old Anglican bishop by the name of George Horn. He wrote in the, 19, in the 18th century. But George Horn is, in his commentary on the Psalms, he specifically in Psalm 139 uses this phrase that stuck in my mind, and we're going to put it up on the screen. He says this, We are neither to hate the men on account of the vices they practice, nor love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. I love that. We are neither to hate the men on account of the vices they practice, nor to love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. God doesn't give us the permission to hate people who practice a particular sin. And sometimes, even if those sins are so hateful in our society, we are still not given the the right to condemn them for the sake of their sin. But notice second, the, the second part of that here. He says, nor are we to love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. And isn't that a big tendency in our culture today? Well, I really like you, and so I guess I have to love your sin as well. The Bible says, no way. We really can love and have a care and a compassion for an individual sinner while at the same time disapproving of what they do. But what Jesus says here, and and I'll read the verse again, judge not that you be not judged. What Jesus 
says here does not prohibit examining the lives of others, but it certainly prohibits doing it in the spirit that it's often done in. There are many people, many people who would call themselves disciples of Jesus who unjustly condemn other people and allow themselves to hate other people for the sins that they practice. Friends, this is a command that we need to take very seriously here. Let me give you an example of how we can break this command of judge not that you be not judged. Number one, we break this command when we think the worst of other people. Isn't that so easy to do? We can think the worst of other people and anything bad that is said about them, just we automatically believe it because we've already determined in our hearts that we're going to think the worst of them. Number two, we break this command when we speak of other people only about their faults. And so let's just say that you've got a friend or a neighbor or relative that lives a problematic lifestyle when it comes to biblical morality. Is the only thing that you ever talk about them for or the only time you ever talk to them personally is when you're talking to them about this problem that you have with their life? Listen, uh, to, to have that kind of an attitude is to be judgmental in a way that Jesus addresses here. Number three, we break this command when we judge an entire life by its worst moments. Now, I want you to just think about the three worst things that you've ever done in your life. How would you like it if your entire life was to be judged by those three worst things that you've ever done? And yet, don't we do that with people sometimes? We will judge an entire life by the worst things that they've ever done. Number four, we can also break this command when we judge the hidden motives of other people. We break this command when we judge others without considering ourselves in the same circumstances. And we break this command when we judge other people without being mindful of the fact that we also stand before a judge in heaven one day. Friends, this is a very difficult thing to do in our modern age as Christians. How do we as Christians stand for biblical truth? And sometimes express disapproval for other people's sins without breaking this command. Because more and more in our culture, and any expression of saying, you know what, that's sin, that's not right, is treated as hatred. And it's as if we are not allowed to make any expression of biblical morality. Let me give you an example of just how crazy this has been shown in recent years. There used to be a television show called, uh, on HGTV called uh, Fixer Upper. It started in uh, 2013. It ran for five seasons. My wife and I used to love to watch that show together. But if you've never heard of Chip and Joanna Gaines, we've got a picture that we're going to put up on the screen here this morning that you can see it for yourself. But the Gaineses have this real estate uh, uh, and renovation company. They, they own a home decorating store and a business that's located in Waco, Texas. And as a matter of fact, a few years ago, our family was going on a family vacation to Texas, and on our way, we actually drove past this place that Chip and Joanna Gaines owned called uh, Magnolia Farms. And it, it has food trucks on it, it has a restaurant, it has a bakery, 
It has this big store with all sorts of things that you can buy to decorate your home with. And uh, we, we didn't have any room in our car or van to really buy too much. But we did look around and we did eat some good food while we were there. But this show, Fixer Upper, it, it revolves around this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines. And they take old, outdated, rundown homes and they try to totally fix them up and to make them into these beautiful places to live in. Now, let, let me just be clear here that this show, Fixer Upper, is a very wonderful show, but it is not a Christian show, not at all. This is a show about remodeling houses. This is not a show about the church or about the gospel or about anything like that. The Gaineses themselves are believers. They are Christians. And when you, you would watch the show, you could get this sense of their happiness. You could get this sense that, that something was magnetic about them, especially on the screen. I, I, I don't even remember them coming right out and saying anything about Christianity on the show or anything like that, but it was just a nice show. Well, there was this controversy that they faced a few years ago because the pastor of the church that they attend said something and it was retweeted or reposted by them on their company website. And the pastor, what he said was simply that marriage was to be between one man and one woman. And that statement that statement was thought to be a scandal over the fact that these two television personalities attend a church where a pastor would say that and that the church would actually believe it. Again, what was the controversial belief? Well, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Let me tell you something here. Without talking about all of the politics of same-sex marriage, let me just say something about what the Bible has to say about same-sex marriage, that the Bible does not recognize it whatsoever. As a matter of fact, from a truly Christian perspective, that's like the most non-controversial thing ever, that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's what the Bible very clearly says. Again, biblically speaking, there's no controversy about this. Now look, please don't get me wrong. I totally understand, I fully understand that there is... Plenty of controversy when you take biblical truth and you try to figure out how it enters into political and social realms in our day and in our culture. And I don't believe that you could take everything from the Bible that the Bible talks about regarding morality and just make it into law in the state. Sometimes, some things you can, some things you can't. But I think that there is a legitimate place for discussion about this. But just to get back to the point... The idea that marriage, as God recognizes it, is between one man and one woman, that is not controversial. And that's, uh, but yet, that's a very controversial thing in our society at large. And so this so-called scandal just a few years ago had nothing to do with Chip and Joanna Gaines themselves, nothing at all. It just simply had to do with the church that they attended and the pastor that they sat under. Notice again, the scandal was simply because they attended a Christian church that believes what the Bible says about marriage. Friends, to me that, that seems like a weird controversy to have. And yet it was a big scandal on the internet and on social media. They were portrayed as being hateful and spiteful and bigoted people because they attend a church that teaches what the Bible pretty plainly and clearly says. But... 
That's the kind of world that we live in today, and increasingly so. The world is becoming hostile towards biblical truth, and it presents us as believers with a big problem. How do we serve Jesus? How do we show ourselves to be his disciples in a culture that is openly hostile to many expressions of Christianity? You could say it this way, that at one time in our culture, there was sort of a cultural dominance of Christianity. But then there became this marginalization of it, and then there became an indifference to it, and now it's just outright hostility towards biblical truth. And as far as I can tell, it, it, it just doesn't seem like it's going to get better. It's going to become more and more that way. And I, that, that might not be the case, but it sure looks like it might be more and more that way as time goes on. I, I mean, really, are we going to get to the place where you get in trouble for what it is that I say from the pulpit? I would rather that I get in trouble for what I say from the, pul- from the pulpit. That makes sense to me. But these lines are getting more and more blurred here. And how do we speak to a culture that's becoming more and more this way? Particularly when we consider these words. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, I want to give you three words that I think will help to guide our conversation on this. These are not the final words on this. But this is uh, some words that in my mind are three uh, big words to consider. Number one, the first word is truth. And I mean truth in two different ways. Uh, The the first way is that it just has to do with biblical truth. We have to stick to biblical truth. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Friends, the opinion of the culture goes back and forth. It's here today and gone tomorrow. What the culture believes Ten years from now will probably be very different from what it believes today and very different than what it, from what it believed ten years ago. The culture is always changing, but we have a fixed point in biblical truth. And I'm sticking with that. What else is there to teach? What else is there to live by? We need to stand for biblical truth. But when I'm talking about truth, I'm also talking about it in another way as well. <clears throat> The people we disagree with, the people who attack us, we we need to speak the truth when it comes to them as well. And sometimes Christians can use these phony arguments about uh, against people that they disagree with. And it's up to us to speak the truth when we are interacting with people. For example, if we are going to disagree with somebody, if we are going to have an argument with someone, we need to argue fairly. We need to argue rightly. And so when I say the word truth, it, the, the, that first word, I'm talking both about biblical truth, but I'm also talking about what it is that we say that it is true. But the second word that I want to use here is this word respect, respect. Did you know that it is entirely possible to respect someone that you disagree with? I, I think that Christians need to show that, and, and Christians need to show this attitude of love and honor and respect for people that they disagree with. If the first instinct that people get from us is that we despise them, they're never going to listen to what we have to say. So truth, respect, and then third, I would say uh, humility. Humility. Because 
If we get this high and mighty, this holier-than-thou attitude, well, first of all, that's not true. But then secondly, that's the fastest way to turn people off and to push them away. We certainly need to speak to the culture. We need to speak the truth. We need to speak with respect. And we need to speak with humility. Now let me tell you something else here as well. Even if we do all of this right, even if we do this all perfectly, we speak to the culture perfectly in every way, they will still often reject us. But that's okay, because at least we did our part to speak rightly. And I'll I'll tell you that there are a lot of reasons why for us to speak right, why we should speak rightly in the culture. But one of them is simply this, that that's how we want to be spoken about as well, right? When you see people who are vocally and publicly despising biblical morality, don't you wish that they spoke about believers with respect? Don't you wish that they spoke about believers with humility? Don't you wish that they spoke about believers with truth? And what is Jesus going to say just a few verses from here? Well, if you, we're going to look at it in a few weeks. Um, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So however you would wish other people to treat you in the midst of whatever disagreement or argument you might have, that is the same kind of truth and respect and humility that you need to treat other people with. <clears throat> now notice this. It's the second aspect of what Jesus said here. In verse 2, you can look at it there in your Bible. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You can also say it like this. Jesus didn't prohibit us from judging others, but he warned us that our judgment has to be fair. And you should only judge others by a standard that you are willing to be judged by. Friends, unfortunately, Christians have not always done this well. And let me just give you an example of, uh, of how, um, in some cases, Christians have not done this so well. A- at times, we can look at a particular type of sexual sin and we can just be horrified by it. Let's just say it. We, we can be horrified by same-sex attraction, by homosexual action. We, we can look at that and we can focus on that. But, but doesn't the world have every right to come back at the Christian community, at the Christian church in America today and to say, what about the adultery of premarital sex that is happening among so many Christian couples today? That, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. What about that? The world could say, well, listen, uh, you're holding us to a standard that you don't even follow yourself. And so we need to be able to say that whatever standard we judge anybody else by, that we'll judge ourselves by that same standard. Why? Because at the end of verse 2, Jesus says, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Listen, there's always this tendency to take a teaspoon of grace and understanding and take this tiny little teaspoon and give it to other people. But what we want in return is that we want God to give us like a 
large dump truck load of grace and understanding. And God says, you know what? If you use a teaspoon of grace and understanding with other people, you better be careful because I might use a teaspoon of grace and understanding with you as well. Whatever judgment we use with other people, whatever measure we use, that same measure will be used of us. Well, beginning in verse 3, Jesus is going to give an illustration of this principle. And here's what he says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you have a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus is intentionally using this funny illustration here. He, he does not mean this literally. He is using this to be memorable. He is using this to be funny. I mean, he's not speaking of someone literally having a board in their eye. I mean, if that would happen, what would you do? You would take them to the doctor, right? This is an illustration and it is intended to be funny. You have a small little speck of sawdust in your eye. And I notice it. And I say, hey, let me help you out with that speck of dust, that speck of sawdust that's in your, in your eye there. And, and I'm trying to reach on over to you. And, and I actually start hitting you in the head with this board that's in my eye. And, and, and I'm like, you know what? I, I can't see what's going on. I can't seem to, to notice what's going on here very well. And it's kind of this funny illustration, right? And yet it's a powerful illustration, isn't it? Jesus says, listen, first you take that log out of your own eye and then you can deal with the speck that is in your brother's eye. And notice this. Jesus didn't say that we are not allowed to take care of the the, the speck that's in our brother's eye. I, I mean... Uh, Maybe your brother does have a speck in his eye and Jesus says, you know what, I want you to help your brother out with that speck that's in his eye. But only after you have dealt with the board, after you've dealt with the plank, after you've dealt with the log that's in your own eye. Again, sometimes this has been true of those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. And isn't this why Jesus warns us about this here? Isn't this why he speaks to us as believers that he says, Look at, at your own life first. Examine yourself first. Now, Jesus does not imply here that you are to be sinlessly perfect before you ever go and talk to anybody else about their life. I mean, that would be a strange exaggeration of what Jesus says here. But I would say this, that if your life is filled with impurity and uh, compromise and sin, what right do you then have to go to turn around and, and point out the sins of everybody else's lives? Shouldn't you get the log out of your own eye first before you deal with the speck in somebody else's eye? This is a very effective way for Jesus to illustrate this point that he's talking about here. Now, We come back to verse 6 here, and it's the last verse that we're going to look at today. Here is this second illustration that Jesus gives. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
You say, well, Jesus, what are you talking about? How does all of this connect? Well, I, I think that what Jesus is doing here is this, that he has just warn, warned uh, us about judgmentalism, about being blindly critical of other people. But he is not telling us that we should turn off all discernment. Because there is a place for discernment in our lives. There is a place to say, listen, I'm not going to take what is holy and cast it to the dogs. I'm not going to take pearls and throw them to the pigs. I, I think that we would say it this way. Don't be judgmental, but don't throw out your discernment either. You might ask, well, who are the dogs? I mean, who are the pigs, really, that Jesus is speaking about here? Usually, when we think about dogs, when we think about pigs, it's those who are hostile to the message of the kingdom of God, those who are hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. And sometimes, we love people so much, and we care about them so much, that we are blind to their hostility. And listen, sometimes someone can, can be so hardened in their rejection of Jesus Christ that, that you can do damage to them by continuing to throw the message of the gospel to them. As a matter of fact, it can even become like this. You can begin to think that it is your job to save them and that you are going to just take, you're going to save them by taking the gospel pearls and just cramming them down their throat until they enjoy it. Thank you very much. But listen, Jesus says that there comes a time when you've thrown out the gospel pearls long enough. And now you just need to kind of live it out before them and see what God does with it. You tell them the gospel, they despise it. You tell them the gospel, they despise it. You tell them the gospel, they despise it. Now, maybe it gets to a place, and I, I think that you need to really listen to the Holy Spirit about where this place might be, but it can come to a place where the words just aren't effective anymore, and, and you just have to trust that God is going to use the words that you've already spoken and just to simply live it out before them. Listen, here's the point. Sometimes people won't receive what you have to say, but instead they will refuse it. And if a person is so hardened, then it is better to not just keep casting it before them. Instead, trust the work that God alone can do and be dedicated to loving this person and living out the gospel before them. Some of you were pigs and dogs before God got to you. You rejected the gospel dozens of times before you ever accepted it. And I, I don't know everyone's particular story here today, but some of you could say, yeah, that was me. Yet God found a way to break through. Friends, don't give up hope on those who have rejected the gospel, but don't just keep beating them over the head with it either. God can do a miraculous transformation even in lives like that. But this is a big deal for us. We must learn how to live out what Jesus speaks to us in these first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. We come to a world and we don't judge them in Jesus' name, but we love them in Jesus' name. And we hold up a standard of truth and respect and humility and we watch for what God might do among people, his people right here today. I know that a lot of times when we talk about our culture, it's depressing. 
We can say things like, oh man, it's so terrible. It looks like things are just getting worse and worse and worse. What's happening with this world? And, and, And I get some of the discouragement. I get some of the depression. But let me tell you something, friends. It is high season for the kingdom of God. It really is. God has laid before us a beautiful and powerful season of opportunity. In fact, when the, when, when the night is darker, the lights shine brighter. My concern is that we would be faithful lights and continue to shine very, very brightly. My concern is that as the hostility from the culture increases, that instead, that instead of more and more people walking away from Christ because the price is just far too high to pay, that we would be the type of people who would run to Christ because there is nowhere else to run. He alone has the keys to life. Now, more than ever before, is a time to press in to Jesus Christ and to say, Lord, we, we, we're going to live faithfully as your disciples and we are going to do this during these challenging times today. Show us the way, and we'll be faithful to you. Let's pray.